0: Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be with you guys. Spring is in the air. Um, My eyes are itching, which means the pollen is out and the allergies are starting. Uh, And uh, I just feel like everywhere I look, people are falling in love. Isn't that what spring is about? Uh, We have people that are starting to date, we have people that are getting engaged left and right, getting married. I feel like most of my evenings these days, I'm meeting with couples to prepare for marriage and to deal with marital things. Um, but uh, that's what spring is, isn't it? And uh, just so happens that we're doing a series on the Song of Songs. And we took a break from this last Sunday to pause and reflect and to pray for our city um, in the aftermath of what happened uh, just two weeks ago at the Boston Marathon. But today we're picking back up on this series And uh, three weeks ago, I began us in the beginning of the Song of Songs talking about what it means for us to find the perfect person. Not. Not to find the perfect person, but to uh, how we can be attracted to the kind of person that God wants us to find. Two weeks ago, Hojin talked about courtship, and he encouraged us to persevere, uh, but to also ask the important questions of what we need in our lives and to uh, ask God to provide those things ...through the spouse that we will one day have or already have. And today, uh, we come to the middle part of this series, where we're going to be looking at chapter 3, verse 6, all the way to chapter 5, verse 1. And chapter 5, verse 1 is literally the climactic moment of the song. Pun intended. Uh, this is the part of the, of the book. There are 23 mini poems in this song... And in these poems here that we're going to be looking at, you see the progression from anticipation, and this is the wedding. The anticipation, the invitation, and the consummation. Solomon can't wait to be with his wife, to be with his bride. And so he's anticipating this special, sacred moment that they're about to share. And then he invites her to join him in this place of private intimacy, And then they consummate their love for one another. And so the Song of Songs, as I've mentioned, is a book like no other. It's very evocative, sensual. It is not an allegory. It is a literal dance or love song between a man and a woman. Solomon probably wrote a thousand poems like this. But this is his greatest hits album. And that's why it's called The Song of Songs or The Song of Solomon. And as I said uh, at the very beginning of this series, the more we understand about human love in marriage, the better we can understand our relationship with God and with Christ. Because it is really the perfect metaphor that the Bible begins with in Genesis, it ends with in Revelation, and all throughout the Bible depicts marriage as that covenant bond that we have with one another, as husband and wife, but also as God and His creation, And they are the only two relationships in our life that are completely exclusive. You can only have one God, and you can only have one spouse. If you have more of either, your life will become very complicated and broken and fractured and difficult. And so my hope today is for us to continue reading through the song, and let me just forewarn you that what we're about to look at is uh, very graphic, is very evocative, and uh, I'm not going to pull any punches, but this is the best place to talk about sex. Um, My wife and I, we oftentimes uh, talk about how we want to raise our kids and what we want to teach them and lead them through, and we've made the commitment to say we want to be an open home where they can talk about anything. And so, already with my second grader and my fourth grader, we've gone into the birds and the bees conversations. We've talked about sex and genitals and pornography and all of that stuff. And it's because I want them to have a safe environment where they can trust the one that they're learning it from and talk about whatever questions or curiosities that they might have on their mind. And this is the home, and this is the way that this is the home we want to have and and the kind of parenting we want to utilize as, as mom and dad. But also for the church, as your pastor, I want this to be a place, a safe place for us as men and women to talk about sex and sexuality, love and romance, um, intimacy, heartbreak and heartache, healing and everything in between. And so, therefore, we must look at the Song of Songs together. And this is from the Bible. We're not making this up, we're not picking different passages to try to thematically approach this issue, but we're going to look at it as it was penned by Solomon. 3,000 years ago. So uh, what I'm going to do today is rather than reading the passage and then kind of preaching a sermon, I'm going to read through these three poems together and I'm going to have a running commentary as we kind of go verse by verse and section by section. And then I'll close after we're kind of done with this section uh, with four very important applications. So if you'll turn with me to the Song of Songs, we're going to be reading uh, or beginning in chapter 3, verse 6. And I think I'm having some trouble with my remote. So let's begin together. And if you don't have a Bible, you can follow me here up on the screen. This is the voice of the Shulamite, the woman. And she says, Who is this coming up from the desert like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all the spices of the merchant? Thank you, Ojin. This is the question that the Shulamite woman is asking. And uh, she sees from a distance her lover coming to the wedding. It's kind of like at a wedding ceremony when all the guests have watched the mother and the father and the uh, the, the bridesmaids and the groomsmen and the ring boy and the flower girl and the... And the, and the, and the, and the And the guys all just come up, and then after everybody's entered in, there's that special moment where the back door flings open, and everybody turns their attention to the beautiful, glorious bride. Or, like a column of smoke, it's like going to uh, a One Direction concert, and when they come on stage, there's a fog machine uh, that sort of ushers in their presence, or the Backstreet Boys, or whatever you're into. I'm kind of dating myself here, but... uh, It's like going to a concert and there's like fog and smoke and it's creating this atmosphere of anticipation and mystery and intrigue. And from this column of smoke is coming this thing, this man. And the answer is in verse 7, look, it's Solomon's carriage escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. So Solomon is now being brought in on a carriage, or it could be better understood as a couch with four poles, with men holding them like royalty... But not just four men, 60 armed soldiers, the best trained, the elite, again, to uh, depict Solomon's grandeur, his courage, his nobility, his kingship. He is being ushered in, not by four men, but by 60 men who are ready to defend him all watches of the night. This is how Solomon is being brought in to the procession of his wedding day. And in verse 9, it tells us and explains a little bit about that ushering. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. Lebanon was uh, the the country where the choicest cedars would be brought in to not only make furniture, but uh, carriages or or anything of of noble uh, pedigree. Its posts he made of silver, "...its base of gold, its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior lovingly inlaid by the daughters of Jerusalem." Come out, you daughters of Zion, and look at King Solomon wearing the crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. So this is the wedding day, clearly. The, the woman looks off to the distance and she sees in a pillar of smoke her fiancé, her, her, hus- her future husband, coming in. And now it's describing sort of the way that he's being brought to the altar, how he's being brought before his bride to be uh, making a covenant of marriage, to make these promises together. And there's just this majesty. There's silver and gold and purple uh, cloth, which was the color of royalty. Uh, And then it talks about the crown that Solomon was rightfully to wear as the king of Israel. And so this is sort of the anticipation from the woman's side. She's so excited to see her man coming in like a king. Uh, like a noble man, and she is uh, in awe of his glory and his majesty. And then, in chapter 4, the voice changes to Solomon's voice. And now Solomon begins to describe his bride. And he says, How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Now, if you Listen to the way that Solomon is describing his bride. He's using animals, wild animals. And you would think, oh man, that's kind of gross. Was she ugly? You know, was, was, was he blinded by love? And, and was he really seeing something else? But uh, again, this is not the kind of language that you or I would use to flatter someone. Would we? I hope not. I hope not. But this was the kind of language that Solomon used 3,000 years ago. And again, the context here, which is set in verse 1, is her beauty. So he's not trying to compare her to a wild animal beast, like, oh, how beastly you look on our wedding day. But he's saying, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. And then he says, your eyes are veiled. And the purpose of the veil was to hide so that you would want to desire more that which is being hidden. It's also meant to protect the innocence of what it's shielding. And then he talks about her hair like a flock of goats. What woman would want hair like a flock of goats? Hopefully none of you, but again, the imagery is from that of Mount Gilead, which was a beautiful mountainside valley. It was one of the, it, was, it would be like going to, say, like the Grand Canyon and saying, oh, this is so beautiful, and my wife is so beautiful, her love is so deep and wide, like the Grand Canyon. And he's comparing her hair, which was a woman's most intimate prized possession at that time. Women did not reveal or let down their hair in public or before any man, only before their husband. But Solomon is now describing her hair in this very beautiful and magnificent way. And then in verse 2, he says, Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn. Each has its twin, not one of them is alone. What's going on? What does he mean by this? Your teeth look like sheep. You got hairy wool in between your teeth. Well, that's not what it's describing either. You have to remember that 3,000 years ago, this was a time long before... Dental hygiene was actually practiced. They didn't have crest and Colgate and toothbrushes and dental floss. They didn't have dentists or dental hygienists or uh, orthodontic surgeons or Invisalign or braces. The average person 3,000 years ago had jacked up teeth, all right? And they weren't white. They were dark yellow or brown. And a lot of them were missing. But when Solomon looks at his wife, what he finds are first white teeth, which was rare, And she's got all of them. Each has a twin. Not one of them is alone. (laughs) Not only do you have a left incisor, but you have a right incisor, a left bicuspid and a right bicuspid, a left molar and a right. You have all your teeth. Most of the girls on the street, they're missing. They've got like gaps and holes and, you know, hammer time all going up in their mouth. But he sees in her smile the perfection of beauty. She has a beautiful Wonderful smile, and what you're going to notice as we continue to read this part of the anticipation poem is that he's literally describing her from head to toe. So he begins with her eyes. He talks about her hair. Now he's talking about his teeth. Where do you think he'll go next? Well, in verse three, he says, "Your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely, right? Her lips are this this deep, sumptuous red. He can't wait to kiss them, right? And then he says, "Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a." pomegranate, right? Now again, remember, this is supposed to be imaginative. And I don't think Solomon put a footnote there saying, this is what I meant by pomegranate. But for him, as he was looking at his bride on his wedding day, he saw something sweet, something beautiful that he wanted To kiss and put his lips on. And so not only did he want to kiss her in the mouth, but all over her face, including her temples. Talk about being head over heels. He continues to work down her body now and becomes, uh, now that he's described everything up here, he's coming to the neck. He says in verse 4, Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with elegance, right? Right? Some commentators say, oh, okay, well, there goes the first uh, problem. Uh, you know, she's got a long neck, right? You know, she's got a long neck, and he's pointing it out, but he's in love, so he doesn't really see it. But it's not being literal here. And in fact, if it was a long neck, in that time, long necks were considered to be beautiful. The Egyptians, if you look at all of their art and their hieroglyphics, they always depict the queens and the beautiful one with long necks with many bands around their necks. So it was actually considered at that time to be something of, of beauty. But here, again, Solomon is just saying, enthroned on this neck of yours is his beautiful face. And then he says, On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. In other words, she is wearing beautiful jewelry that adorns her neck. Just like a bride on her wedding day wears sparkling earrings and a beautiful uh, um, crown. No, tiara. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, everybody's so paying attention today. That's, that's great. Uh, and and rings and bracelets and and all of that. Well, he's just saying, hey, look at you. You are completely beautiful, everything that you are and everything that you're wearing. So he's working his way down her body, head to toe. So where will we go next? Let's see, verse 5. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. So now he's describing her breasts. Right? And again, uh, for him, uh, this is uh, something that only he uh, gets to see and look at and enjoy as he's imagining, as he's anticipating. uh, He's literally unclothing her with his imagination. But it's appropriate and right because this is their wedding day. This is what you do on your wedding day. You get to make a covenant, a promise with your spouse. And then you get to take off their clothes and consummate your love and have sex. And that's what he's describing here. And uh, he uh, stops. It's kind of like a strip tease. He stops at the breast. He doesn't go any lower, but he will later. But it's kind of like this tantalizing tease. He's imagining the beauty of his wife. And he's uh, counting all of the ways in which she's beautiful. Like Elizabeth Browning's famous poem that says, Oh, how I love thee, let me count the ways. He's saying, these are all the things I love about you from head to toe. If someone were to say, I love you, and you ask them why, and they're like, I don't know, I just love you. They don't really love you. Tell me, what do you love about me? I don't know, you're great. That's not good enough. Give me a, a 101 reasons why you love me. And that's what Solomon is telling his bride. These are all of the things I appreciate about you. And remember, these are just his greatest songs. I'm sure there are many other that describe his beautiful bride on that day. But this is what we have here collected in the Song of Songs. And he's describing her physical outward beauty. And then in verse 6, he says, Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of Myrrh and to the hill of incense. He's basically saying now, I can't wait to be with you and consummate our marriage to become one. I will go to the mountain of Myrrh and the hill of incense is a metaphor for being one with her. Climbing the mountain or the hill of her body. And then in verse 7, it says, All beautiful you are, my darling, there is no flaw in you. So he begins this section in verse 1 by saying, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. And then he closes this particular poem with, all beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. And I love that line. Hopefully all of you will hear that someday from your spouse. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful. There is no flaw in you. But let's be honest for a second. If someone were to say you're perfect, there's nothing wrong with you, would you really believe them? Because I... I know if we all are honest and we look in the mirrors, we aren't very perfect looking, are we? We've got, uh, you know, things about us that we're not so happy about or pleased. Oh, my nose is a little crooked or, you know, my eyes are a little too far apart or I've got a scar from a pimple I had in, you know, seventh grade right here or whatever. I've got, you know, got a hump on my back or I don't know, you're looking and you realize you're not really perfect. But what Solomon is doing is he's establishing a standard of beauty in his bride. He's saying, literally, love is blind. In you is all that I want and all that I need. I do not desire or want anyone or anything else. And a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how we shouldn't be attracted physically to people first. Because what happens is, when the physical fades, there's nothing left to keep you attracted and held together. Rather, we should be looking for character, which is a lifelong quality, that goes deeper than the skin. But the problem that people will say is, well, Eugene, you talk about character, but what if we're not attracted to each other? Well, let me be honest with you. Attraction is chemical. It comes and it goes. It changes with time. Therefore, if the relationship is simply based on the physical, then there is nothing that will endure it through the hard times. But to Solomon... We don't really know what she looks like. He's describing her in this beautiful way, but who knows? I mean, he could just, that's his standard of beauty. Your standard of beauty, my standard of beauty could be very relative and very different. And so what I'm trying to say is when we're looking for character and we're looking for reputation and value, what I believe to be the case is that attraction, physical attraction can follow character. But character rarely follows attraction. You can fall in love with somebody who's noble and truthful and righteous and moral, and you can respect them. And if you become intimate with them, you can become attracted to them, and you can enjoy great intimacy, but rarely the other way around. So, what Solomon is saying is here, he's saying, You are beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. And I'm going to apply this point at the very end, but let's keep moving on because it gets better. In verse 8, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sanir, the summit of Hermon, from the lions' dens and the mountain haunts of the leopards. He's basically saying, "Hey, let's go together to a safe place where we can be alone for as long as we like and do whatever we want with each other." In verse nine, he's saying, "You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace." Now let's hold on for a second there. First of all, he says, "You've stolen my heart." Right, which is a great phrase. You've stolen my heart. You've swept me off my feet. But then he says uh, something kind of weird. Did you see that? My sister. (laughs) Right, My sister, my bride. Now, the NRSV is a modern translation that conveniently changes the word sister to treasure because it's kind of an awkward word. But in Hebrew, it literally means sister. So what's going on? Well, the NRSV people, they don't want people to think that he's marrying his literal sister, that he's committing incest, right? But the Hebrew word literally means sister. It's a term of endearment. Kind of like many of us, uh, if you're Korean like I am, when you're dating, uh, a lot of times you'll see this happening. When a guy and a girl are dating, what does the girl call the guy if they're like, you know, like Korean or into Korean culture? They call the guy oppa, which means older brother, which is gross, You just kissed your older brother. You just had dinner and held hands with your older brother. But no, it's not like literally like your sibling. It's a term of endearment, of affection. And it's weird because in Korean culture, even though that word means older brother, if you're younger than your girlfriend, they still call you oppa. I don't get it, but that's how it works. But it's a term of endearment. And in the same way, Solomon is saying to his bride, my sister, my bride. He looks at her innocently in that way, but affectionately in that way. But I would even say for us, theologically, we have to all understand that under God our Father, we are what? Children of God. Therefore, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, treat younger women like sisters, older women like mothers, younger, bro- younger men like brothers, with absolute purity. Paul encourages us to treat the opposite gender with purity, like siblings. Imagine if we treated each other like siblings rather than someone to take advantage of, someone to manipulate, someone to win, someone to to woo into a relationship with. What if we considered them as a literal brother or sister to love, to serve, to protect, to edify, to build up rather than just to meet my own need of loneliness and sexual appetite. Imagine that. Imagine the quality of our relationships. There would be a lot less heartbreaks and hang-ups and heartache, right? And oftentimes, I see this weird phenomenon happening in the church and in fellowship circles. A boy and a girl will be dating, a guy and a girl will be going out, and then when they break up, it's weird all of a sudden. They're no longer intimate or going out anymore, so one of them has to leave the circle of fellowship or go to another church. I'm like... Do you not understand that that's your brother and sister? That before she or he is your boyfriend or girlfriend, before he or she is your husband or wife, they are your brother and sister in Christ. And one day, ultimately, when we come into eternal glory before God, we will be worshiping not as husbands and wives, but as brothers and sisters up to our Heavenly Father. So our first identity to each other is brother and sister. Therefore, let's maintain that unity and bond of peace with each other by loving each other in that way. Not as a piece of meat. Not as somebody who's just going to meet my selfish needs. But how can I meet her needs? And how can I meet his needs in a way that is edifying? In a way that is glorifying and honoring to God? And then, if we approach relationships that way, I bet we could break up in very healthy ways. We could still be good friends. We could still pray together, go to the same Bible study or small group, go to church together and it not be awkward. Our friends will still be friends with each other if we approach relationships from this theological understanding that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So Solomon here is using it as a term of endearment, but I'm taking it a step further and saying, hey, let's step back and let's remember our first identity to each other is brother and sister, not husband and wife, not boyfriend and girlfriend. But brother and sister, let's treat everyone in that honoring, kind of honorable type of way. <clears throat> and then he says, again, you have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. Right? He is absolutely smitten by her. And then he says, how delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any spice Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like that of Lebanon. Again, he's getting very sensual and evocative here. He's describing her appearance, but also her aroma. And now he's talking about what she tastes like when they kiss. It's like a honeycomb, uh, like milk and honey under your tongue. How do you find out what somebody tastes like under their tongue? You kiss them under their tongue. You deep kiss. You French, probably not a French kiss. It's probably like a Middle Eastern kiss or something like that. I don't know. But they're deep kissing. This is not a a peck on the cheek or a blow you a kiss. You know, they're old-fashioned back then. They didn't do that kind of stuff. Oh, yes, they did. And they did it, you know, all the way. And the fragrance of your garments is like that of Lebanon. So they're kissing deeply and they're enjoying each other and they're utterly satisfied with each other. Can you believe that? They are completely satisfied. He says, your love is more pleasing than wine. So there's there's nothing that tastes better or is more valuable or worthy than your love and to be with you. And then in verse 12, he continues the description of her body. He says, you are a garden locked up, my sister my bride. You are a spring enclosed in a sealed garden. Fountain. Let's stop right there for a second. I love that metaphor. He calls her a garden locked up, a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Now, the image of the garden in biblical literature, but also ancient Near Eastern literature, was that of a very sexual tone. Here in the Bible, the garden is a little bit of an echo from the Garden of Eden, which means in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were completely naked with no shame, it was in paradise and they had everything, and they were completely head over heels with each other, what do you think they did most of the time? Crossword puzzles? Sudoku? P90X? No. They were intimately involved. That was their way of experiencing oneness and to uh, uh, erase the need of loneliness and separation and also to understand what it meant to be connected and communed with God. So this is the echo of that. But in literature at that time, the garden was the secret place that a husband and wife would go to consummate their marriage or to be intimate with each other. And a third metaphor, the garden was the woman's body. So he's talking about her body here. He's saying your body is locked up. It's untouchable. No one's ever touched it before. It's enclosed. It's a sealed fountain. And I love the locked up garden metaphor because women, your bodies are a garden, but it should be a private garden that no one ever gets to see or smell or touch or taste. Don't turn your private garden into a public park for just anyone (laughs) to see and experience. If your body is like the Boston Common where people just go out to picnic and throw a Frisbee and hit a softball, then you are unable to give the one of, I I think, the best gift to your husband on your wedding day, which is your purity, your chastity, your virginity. It should be locked up, hidden, and stored away. Because if you give yourself, whether you're a man or a woman, to another man or woman who is not your spouse— all you are doing is regifting your virginity to your spouse. Think about it that way. How would you like it, women, if a man put a ring on your finger and says, Oh, by the way, this is the third time I've done this. Here's a ring. Would you be my wife? Hell no, I don't want to be your wife. I don't want a re-gifted, you know, version of you. And vice versa. What Solomon is saying is, you are a garden that's locked up. No one's ever touched you before in the way that I'm about to touch you. No one's ever tasted you and experienced you and smelled you in the way that I'm about to enjoy you. So he's prizing her virginity and her purity. Brothers and sisters, we need to uphold purity at all costs. And if you're already sexually active, and I'm not naive to think that we aren't, if you've already crossed the lines, and what is the line? What is the line? The line is simply acting on your arousal. Let's just leave it at that. But if you've crossed the line, bring it to the cross. Ask God for forgiveness and discipline yourself to say, no more, I'm going to save myself. It's okay. God will renew your, your purity and your cleanness if you truly repent and you come to him. And you can't give that gift away even if you've already lost it. God can heal you of your past. God can heal you of your sin and your transgression. God can give you that joy and that peace that you can therefore offer to your spouse on your wedding day. But I encourage you to do that. And for those of you who want to be having sex and your boyfriend or girlfriend won't let you or you just haven't met the person who's going to give you the permission and you're frustrated because everybody around you is having it, let me encourage you that that's a wonderful thing you have there. It's a beautiful, precious gift that you've been able, by God's grace, to hold on to, or maybe by misfortune you've been able to hold on to, but it's still a gift, and I would say, you be encouraged, be blessed, friends, if you have that gift. Store it away, lock it up like a private garden. Save it for your wedding night. It's well worth it. And then he starts describing her again. He says, your plants are an orchid of pomegranates. What plants? He's talking about her body. Your plants are an orchid of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. As he explores her body, he's finding so much depth, so much beauty, so much treasure to be found. And this is why sex is so powerful. It's not just a physical act like shaking a hand. It's not just a sense of touch, but it's also the sense of taste and smell and visual and audible. It's the complete But it's not just that either. It's not just physical. It's emotional. And it's spiritual. And that's why when that desire for sex and that appetite is unleashed, it is so strong and powerful and hard to harness. 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 It's hard to hold it in. And that's why when we are desiring to be one with someone and have sex. That desire is so strong, stronger than any other appetite or desire that we might possess because it is so multifaceted and he's talking about the depth of it here as he explores her body, as he experiences intimacy and oneness with her. But he goes further still. He says in verse 15, you are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. The garden represents the woman's body, but even more specifically, it represents the woman's vagina. And he's looking at her, and he's, he's, uh, he's head over heels, and he's describing her body, and she is ready for him. She is a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. And then look at what he says in verse 16. Awake north wind and come south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance May spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. I don't know about you, but this puts fifty shades of gray to rest. (laughs) This is a lot more explicit explicit and erotic. Right? He's literally saying, look at your body. I'm about to come into you and enter you. And she says, Come into this garden and taste its choice fruits. Just let your imagination run with that for a second. This is explicit. No wonder why the church for thousands of years said, oh, this is an allegory. We don't know what to do with this. Children, don't read this. We're not going to do this at VBS. This is just describing God and his people, Solomon and God. It's a convenient way to just say, "I I don't know. But we found that that doesn't hold up. This is actually a literal love song between Solomon and his lover. And now he is about to experience... The consummation. You are a garden. You are a flowing stream. Blow on my garden. Taste its choice fruits. And then... This is the climactic point of the entire song because it's in the very middle. There are 111 lines that precede this verse and 111 lines that succeed this verse. This is literally the hinge and the pinnacle. The entire Song of Songs is a chiasm. It starts with A, A prime, B, P prime, C, C prime, all the way, and it meets in the middle right here at chapter five, verse one. And Solomon says, "I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten." Eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. And now here is a chorus. Eat, O oh friends, and drink, drink your fill, O oh lovers. This is he's not inviting other people to come in and experience what he's just had, but remember this is a song, and so this is a refrain. And all the people are saying, Hey, enjoy that thing you got there. Alright? Hey, enjoy it, it's all yours. Experience the depth of that pleasure. It's like uh, the the morning after I got married and I saw my parents, I was like, oh, you know, and they looked at me and they're like, how was it? You know, (laughs) did you have a good time? And the friends are saying, hey, you know, eat, drink, you know, drink your fill, oh lovers, you know. No need to be awkward. This is very human and this is very natural and you should experience the depth of this oneness and this love with each other. And that's it. And if this was Hollywood... Or a romance novel, they would live happily ever after, right? They meet, they get married, they hook up, happily ever after. But, real quickly, we know that the story isn't happily ever after. We know that Solomon goes on to marry 700 more times. And in addition to 700 wives, he has 300 concubines in his harem. He's not a one-woman man, he's a 1,000-woman man. And we know that that was the downfall of his kingship and his devotion to God. And later in the summer, we're going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes, which was also written by Solomon. And there's there's a lot of deep wisdom in Ecclesiastes about love, about vanity, about what matters and what doesn't. And I believe he wrote this at the beginning when he was younger as a king, or this particular poem. And Ecclesiastes was written at the end of his life after he'd experienced and tasted everything there is to experience. And in Ecclesiastes, he looks back and he talks about his youth, So if you're going to be here for the summer, we're going to continue to go and and delve into the subject. But I want to stop there because this is Act 3. This is the end of Act 3. This is the consummation of their relationship. And I'd like to just drive home four quick points uh, to close us out. The first point is this. Guard your heart and mind. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and that was his downfall. And you're probably thinking, all right, Eugene, even if I wanted to, I wouldn't be able to reach those numbers. Those are like Wilt Chamberlain-type numbers. Those are like movie star-type numbers. I'll never even come close to that. Wilt Chamberlain was a basketball player who said, I slept with thousands of women in my lifetime. Solomon literally did that he had he married 700 women and they were all his and he had concubines on top of that he had everything he had the means he had a mansion he had a palace he had the money he had the he had the the reputation he could do whatever he wanted and he did and yet even though you or I might not be able to experience these kinds of things that Solomon did we still must guard our hearts and minds because even though we might not shack up with over a thousand people we can do it virtually can't we We can do it in our minds, with our eyes. There is this industry called pornography that generates $60 billion a year in revenue. It's good business. I wonder how many women are being virtually slept with, how many men are being virtually slept with as a result of this industry. So we must guard our hearts and our minds. Because what happens when we start viewing pornographic material and it leads to addictions is, remember the standard of beauty that I told you about, how he looked at his wife and she was flawless? Well, once we start looking at bikini models and underwear models and start watching explicit material online or in the movies or reading graphic novels, we have a recalibrated standard of beauty that will never be matched by our spouses. It's an unfair advantage. You will not be able to look at your spouse and be fully attracted to him or her if you have doused your imagination and your heart and mind with explicit material which is not even real. It's airbrush and Photoshop. And those models are, uh, are, are, uh, they have eating disorders and they have all kinds of issues. And it completely distorts our standard of beauty. And it can ruin any marriage husbands and wives are not immune to pornography i mean after we get married we don't look the same as we did on our wedding day do we we rarely look better we gain on a few pounds here or there we gain some wrinkles we lose some hair whatever we're not as attractive as we once were but we must guard our hearts and our minds in christ jesus because this is one of the fastest quickest ways to distort any relationship that you're in And it will skew your understanding of what it means to be physically intimate with your one and only spouse, who you're to have total, complete oneness with. So guard your heart and mind. Solomon literally went out and slept with thousands of women. But we can easily do that virtually, so be careful. And if you struggle with this, confess it. Tell a brother, tell a sister... Receive prayer, receive healing, go to counseling, go to therapy. There are organizations and support groups all over the place that can help us out. You don't have to battle this alone. And I know so many of you battle with it. I've talked to so many of you about it. I've struggled with this myself. We need to bring this before the cross and ask for healing and rescue from the Holy Spirit. So guard your heart and your mind. My second point is this. Have great conversations. Okay, Eugene, what does that mean? What does that have to do with sex? Well, this is, the, this is the point I'm trying to make. A few weeks ago, I talked about how we enter into relationships only interested in the visual, the physical, and not the character. Which means those relationships are built on sex. And maybe even great sex. Maybe it feels good, and it's great. It's better than you've ever had it. Or it's the first, or I don't know. I mean, I don't know what your, your history and your relationships are like. But it's built on the physical. But let me tell you, it's more important to have great conversations Because as I said three weeks ago, you want to be attracted to character. And the only way you'll discover what character is is by having a conversation with somebody. By taking off their clothes, you won't know anything about their character. You'll only know about their body and their physical attractiveness. But when you talk to them, you have to share what's in your heart and what's in your mind and what you've experienced. What makes you happy and what makes you sad. What you live for and what you die for. When you talk, one person has to actually listen. And when one person listens, they actually have to care. So you see what's happening there? Through conversation, you're deepening a relationship without even touching one another. Whereas if you touch one another, you've skipped the character piece and you might not ever find it. My wife and I dated, uh, well, we dated for six months and then we were engaged for four. And that entire time we were long distance. So we did a lot of talking on the phone. We were eight hours apart in a car. And whenever we got together, we were tempted I'm not going to lie. I'm going to be absolutely honest. We wanted to be intimate, very intimate with each other. And we had opportunities. But every time I visited her in Virginia or she came up to Boston, I wouldn't stay at her apartment or on her couch or in her friend's room. I would always go to one of her guy friends' apartments, and she would always stay at one of my uh, friends that were a girl place's apartment. Not one of my other girlfriends, but one of my girlfriend's apartment because we knew the temptation was too great to skip the character piece. And so we spent a lot of time talking and sharing about our history and our past and our convictions and our values and our future and our vision and our dreams. And we fell in love with each other's hearts. And it's so hard. To, it's so easy to skip that. And it's so hard to resist the physical draw and attraction to simply be physically intimate and one. But we must have great conversations. So again, if you're dating and you're physically active, if you're sexually active, draw a line. Say, okay, we've crossed the line. Let's step back a second. Let's talk this out. If we break up simply because we're not having sex anymore, then that's a good thing. But if we can learn to appreciate each other in a more meaningful way, let's do that now. Let's have great conversations. And ask any married person here at church. When you get married, you're not doing the wild thing 24-7. Actually, 90% of life is actually, 90% of marriage is pretty boring and drab. It's raising kids, it's changing diapers, it's paying bills, it's doing the dishes, it's cooking dinner, it's brewing coffee in the morning, going to work, pressing your shirt, mowing the lawn, getting a back rub, whatever. I mean, it's actually 90% quite boring. But you know what you do all of the time when you're married? You talk. So if you're not able to talk before you get married and all you can do is have sex, you're in for a rude awakening because once you get married, you're not going to have as much sex. The sex drive actually dies down. You've got to fight for it. So if you can't have great conversations now, you're in for trouble later. You get get my point here? Have great conversations. And this is an application to all you single folk. Date somebody. Be with somebody that you can talk to for hours and hours and hours. And it's exciting If the only thing that brings you excitement is to take off your clothes and be together, you're headed down the wrong path. But then the next application, this is for my married brothers and sisters here at church. Have even greater sex, okay? Have great conversations, but have even greater sex, okay? So if you're not married yet, just, you know, push the mute or, you know, press the pause button and then you can fast forward to this later in your life. But have great sex. Imagine an epic movie or film without a soundtrack, Imagine Star Wars without all that stuff, right? <laughs> without that. Imagine Chariots of Fire, slow motion, you know, running in the Olympics with no music. <laughs> it looked great, but doesn't... doesn't that all of a sudden, it's so much more color. Imagine Jaws. It's a scary movie with a shark in the water. But at, I was going to play these soundtracks, but it becomes ten times more scary. You can have a movie without a soundtrack. You can have actors. You can have a screen. You can have a a script. You can have a producer and a director. You can have all of these things without music. But it's only half the movie. You can have a marriage, married people, without sex. You can live together, you can sleep together, you can have wonderful dinners together, you can have children together and raise them and not have sex. But a marriage without sex lacks the high def, the excitement, the passion, the HD, the color. And I firmly believe as couples, when we're married and we're not having sex, great sex, our marriages are unhealthy. There's something wrong. And so let me recommend three quick things. If you're not having great sex, and this is so easy, you you single people are like, how is that even possible? I can't wait to have sex. Well, let me just be honest with you. It's hard, especially after a while, and you've got kids, and you've got jobs, and you've got bills, and stress, and you're just, at the end of the day, you're just too tired, okay? I I said that a little too passionately. (laughs) Sometimes you're just too tired, right? But let me be honest with you. There is a solution to that problem, and uh, let me just give quick three notes Particularly if you're married, write these down, jot them down in your mind. Uh, seek help. Go find a counselor. If you haven't had sex in months or even weeks, or it's just once, every month, once a month or every couple of weeks or so, go see a counselor. I could counsel you if you want to talk to me. I'd love to talk with you about it. There's no shame in that. Or go see a professional. Go hire someone, a mar- marriage therapist or a sex therapist. Go find help. It's too important to leave this area of your relationship in the dark and on the back burner. Find help because you need the element of this gift that God has given you to make your marriage all that it was meant to be. Complete oneness, complete joy, one flesh stuff. The other thing you can do is uh, read books, study, do some research. If talking to someone in, pro- in person is, is a bit hard for you, there are great books. Let me recommend two. One is called Intended for Pleasure, and the other one's called Sheet Music, as in bed sheets. Literally, like double entendre, right? It's intended for pleasure and sheet music. Don't read this if you're single. Not yet, not yet. You can put it in your wish list and order it later. But one of these two books, I ask every couple that I do premarital counseling to read two weeks before they get married because I want them to apply it after they get married. But it's the A to Z of sexual intimacy. It answers questions that you didn't even know to ask but it liberates you. It helps you to overcome hurdles and challenges in your f- physical intimacy. Is it okay to do this or not okay to, you know, I don't know. I was raised saying this was right and this was wrong. The book goes into it biblically, theologically, but practically and honestly. Sheet music intended for pleasure. That's the second, in, uh, second piece of advice. If you're not having great sex in your marriage, go see a counselor, talk to a pastor, a therapist, go read some books, do some research, do some homework and apply it. Or thirdly, go on a vacation without the kids leave them home, send a grandma, grandpas, brother, sister, neighbor, whatever, whatever you can do, even if it's just overnight or bed and breakfast, beach trip. My wife and I, we're going to Europe in a few weeks. We're going to Italy and Greece without the kids. People keep saying, why are you going without the kids? You know, you should show them experience. You're robbing them of that experience. And our answer is simply this. Our marriage is more important than our children. Honestly. Now we could go with them, but everything we would do be, would be about them. Oh, let's go to the places you want to go to. Let's eat at the places where you can eat. You know, let's go to sleep early at night and just be bored in a dark hotel room, right? (laughs) Or Esther and I can go away on vacation by ourselves for nine days and go to some of the most beautiful places in Europe and experience romance and passion and keep our flame going. You have to take a vacation every once in a while without the kids. Now, if you don't have kids yet, you're like, well, then what do we do? Well, go on vacation anyway. <laughs> don't just be like, hey, honey, you know, I'll just light some candles in our room. Well, that's old. We've already done that four times, you know. Let's go, let's go to a bed and breakfast. Let's go somewhere warm and go sit out on a beach and drink Mai Tais and then go back to the room and, you know, do more, right? <laughs> you know, keep it going. I encourage you. This is too important of a part of your marriage to let it uh, uh, flicker out and dim down and die out. It is unhealthy. Have great sex. And lastly, I have so much more to say and I'm just going to end it here, but don't awaken love until it's ready. Until this point in the Song of Songs, the the, the refrain is, don't awaken love until it's ready or until it so desires. Don't awaken love. But in this part of the song, Solomon finally says, north wind, south wind, Come on in! Blow on my garden! Awaken it now! Why? Because we are married. The reason why we shouldn't be having premarital sex or extramarital sex is not just because the church told you so, because that reason never worked. Well, why? Because I said so. The Bible says so. But why? What is the deeper reason? No one ever told me that growing up, so I just completely ignored it. Didn't you? But this is the reason why the Bible says don't have premarital sex and extramarital sex. It's because... You and I, all of us here, are created in the image of God. And therefore, we are called to bear the image and the glory of God. Which means we should embody the love of God, the faithfulness of God, the peace of God, the joy of God, the righteousness of God, and everything that God is, as much as possible. We are to embody that. And when God gave His love to us, and God gave us His only begotten Son... He didn't say, well, I'll give you my illegitimate child. I'll give you my adopted son. I'll give you my foster child. And when Jesus was dying on the cross, he didn't say, okay, I've heard enough. I'm coming down now. That'll be enough for you guys. God didn't say, hey, guys, let's sign a prenuptial agreement. I'll be faithful to you if you're faithful to me. I'll forgive your sins if you don't commit them, which then you won't have to be forgiven, right? God wasn't saying my love is conditional and it goes halfway. He says, I give you all of me so that you can have all of me. And I don't share it with anyone else. And if we are image bearers of God and we are supposed to have one spouse, then we give all of ourselves to that one person. What if God says, I'll love you 20%, but I'll love her 20%, and you 20%, and you 5%, and just spread it out with all his different partners. No one would feel totally loved. They wouldn't experience the full depth of his love. But God, in his character, faithfulness, and love, gave all of himself to us through his Son, through his grace, through the cross. And therefore, we are to give all of ourselves to God. But as image bearers, we should also give all of ourselves only to our spouse. Not to a mistress, not to a fling, not to a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a one-night stand because we are image bearers that is why that is why i mean you can add to that all kinds of statistics if you want have premarital sex and your chances of uh, less satisfaction in marriage is greater or divorce or cohabitation i mean i could throw statistics to you left and right and those are all worldly secular and they're proven But the Bible doesn't say, hey, it's because statistically you're not good. No, it's because we are image bearers of God. Therefore, we are to be holy in our relationship with him and holy in our relationship with our spouse. So my desire for our church is that if you're married, you would continue to experience the joy of sex that God has given you as a gift. And if you're single, that you would either stop having sex if you are or be happy that you haven't had it yet rather than disgruntled. Because I know the feeling. You're like, you know, thinking, okay, when I was 12 years old, something in my body changed and I started having a sex drive, an appetite for sex. But that was a long time ago. And the Bible says I can't do anything about it. God, that's cruel. You turned it on way too early. Why don't you turn it on when I'm 30 or 35 when I'm married? And then I can go to town. But now I'm like, I want it, but I can't have it. This is mean. It's unfair. But there was a time when that's when people got married, people started families, as they came into their adulthood. Now we got to go to middle school, we got to go to high school, we got to go to college, got to go to grad school, got to get a job, got to pay off debts, got to find a place to live, got to be responsible. And then by that time, you're in your 20s or 30s, and the the culture that we've lived in has changed. But nevertheless, sex is still God's gift to us. Therefore, we must lock it up in our garden, in a safe place, and open it. Unclothe it, unwrap it when the time is right, when the love is ready to be awakened on your wedding day. So that is my hope for us. The last thing I'll say is this I know there are a lot of questions, and I've already gone way over past time. So uh this is the blog that I was talking about. I'm not self-promoting, I'm not a blogger or anything like that, but I just wanted to create a channel for anyone and everyone to be able to ask a question. Now the thing about my blog is you can ask any question you want anonymously. Okay, so you don't have to pretend like you're someone you're not or make up a fake name. Just go in there and say, hey, Eugene, I had a question. And if it's, a, if it's an appropriate question and one that leads to an edifying response, I promise to answer it. If it's a stupid question, I'm going to ignore it, okay? Not that you guys would ask those kinds of questions, but I'm just opening it up. Go to my blog. I'm not self-promoting. I just wanted to create a channel in case you're too embarrassed to talk to me in person, which you can also do. I'd love to talk with you over coffee or a meal about any questions that you might have. But I know this is a very sensitive issue. Just uh, hit me up on the blog and I'll try to get back to you in a timely manner. But the church, this is a safe place to talk about it. And I know this might sound weird, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. I thought it sounded weird when I first heard it. But sex is worship when it's done right. When it's done wrong, it's like every other gift that God has given us. Our body, money, wealth, prestige, success. Those are all gifts. But when it becomes selfish, it becomes an idol. When it becomes about me, it's an idol. But When sex is a gift that you give to your spouse to show them your complete faithfulness and fidelity, it becomes an act of worship because you thank God that you have a spouse and your needs can be met through that spouse. So if the questions fire away, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this uh, time to talk about sex and marriage and the Song of Songs we thank you, Lord, that you give us uh, a framework. Um, and, and not only that, an atmosphere and an environment to talk about some very important things. But Lord, we admit and confess that our culture has really distorted this gift. We've defiled it. We've manipulated it for our own selfish pleasures and gains. And many of us have been hurt by that. We've been broken by it. We've been victims of sexual sin. And so, Lord God, we ask that you would help us as a community of faith, a community of love, and a community of hope to bring healing and restoration, wholeness, joy, beauty, to restore the gift to its rightful place. And Lord, we can't do that on our own. We need your Holy Spirit to begin that healing work in our own souls, in our minds, in our past, in our experiences and our misplaced expectations, our misinformed information. Help us, Lord, to lay all these things down at the cross. Lord, for those of us who are guilty because we're struggling with sexual sin or pornographic material or masturbation or any unhealthy sexual behavior, God, I pray for healing now. I pray for deliverance. I pray that the guilt will be wiped away as we come to the cross and ask for your help and your guidance and your rescue. Lord, apart from you, we are utterly lost. But Father, renew our purity, renew our sanity, our wholeness, our Im- the image of ourselves and the image of others. So, Father, I just pray and invite the Spirit to bring that healing, that ministry of healing to us now. Lord, I pray for the husbands and wives who are at church who may or may not be experiencing the, the highs, the great highs, the mountain peaks, but also the deep depths of wonderful love, something in between or something off to the side or something misplaced. Father, we know that you want to see the family be a healthy place, and so Lord, would you bring healthy marriages into this place, husbands and wives who are faithful and loyal and loving to each other, meeting one another's needs, enjoying the gift of one another and their gardens. So Lord, would you fix and repair and guide us in growing and developing healthy marriages here at our church. And again, Lord, I just pray for those who've been broken by the gift of sex, that somehow it's come into their lives in the wrong way and really brought a lot of hurt and shame and pain. Lord, we know that that wasn't what you intended when you gave us our sexuality. And yet, in our rebellion and sin, we've done with it what we've wanted and not what you've wanted. So Lord, help us to restore that and help us also to remember that we bear your glory and your honor and your image and that you call us to total faithfulness. Total faithfulness to you and to our spouses and to our future spouses. So lead us in that life and that journey. We ask for your help. We ask for your healing. And we ask for this joy, this love to be awakened in our lives because you are good. And as you created us, you looked at us and said, it is good. So we give you thanks for that, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name.